we joined for international operations, but also to help our fellow citizens. But this comes at a cost. Hi, I'm Captain Adam Wharton with the Canadian Army Podcast. In the past few years, the military has been called out more and more to respond to domestic operations, be it the pandemic, forest fires, flooding, or any number of other emergencies. Here to explain how domestic operations are prepared and soldiers are sent out the door is Lieutenant Colonel Geneviève Bertrand, former CEO of 3M22 and currently working in the Canadian Army headquarters in Ottawa. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. So if we look at military equipment, you know, our uniforms, our vehicles, our training, a lot of that is focused on combat operations. You know, you don't need a 25-ton lav to go out and fight floods. So why is the Army useful in domestic operations and emergency response? So I would say because our troops are kind of uh, trained to answer to a plethora of requests. So they will be able to just react quickly. We do have great training as well as part of just organizing our work that we need to do. Whenever there's a request for DOM ops, domestic operations, it really is because everything else has failed and we need to go and provide assistance to, to the population. So our ability to actually plan quickly within the chain of command and as well for our troops to execute whatever that plan is, is actually quite useful useful. So if we're looking at floods, you know, we're going to talk about sandbags. We're going to talk about just vehicles to transport the troops back and forth and the equipment. And sometimes those big vehicles, those big labs are kind of useful for whenever the roads are flooded. Uh, So this is where it, it will become a good thing to have our troops to go and support the population. You know, we spend a lot of time refining kind of our tools in the toolbox and being flexible to have options because when the next thing pops up, whatever it is, we have to be able to respond to it. But we can't necessarily plan for what that is because by nature, it's always some kind of emergency, whether it be military or otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, when we look at the weather forecast, we can a little bit plan on what's going to happen. So the summer, for example, was a great example where early on we saw that it was going to be a, a pretty high fire index summer and we went out on a few operations to help with that. But like you just said, when it came to COVID and when it came to to the support that we gave for up uh, laser and vector, we were not prepared for that at all. But we were able to rise to the challenge just because we looked at the problem. And because we're used to planning, it was something that we could do looking at a problem and coming up with a solution to try to tackle that problem. Yeah, the commander of the army also has said, you know, our greatest strength is our people. That's the thing that comes up a lot. And having that relatively vast resource of people that we can put almost anywhere in Canada and even to an extent with enough timeline anywhere in the globe, that's a pretty big powerful battery that we have to power these operations. It is. And and whenever we're talking about domestic operations, it's never a good thing, right? It's rarely a, a positive <laughs> yeah. thing yeah, that's, that's right. happening. So it's either floods, it's either the forest fires, or it could be even uh, we had some quite intensive uh, snowstorms back in the Atlantic, or it could be the hurricanes. So usually it's very close and close to the heart of the soldiers as well, because that's where they live. That's their area. So of course, we're really eager to help and we're always happy to have contributed to something and to have done good for the population. 
One thing I've noticed from what you've been talking about is a lot of it seems to be fairly weather centric. Uh, what's up with that? <laughs> that I'm not a meteorologist to be able to talk about that, but we have seen an increase into the request for the Atlantis. Um, so really the domestic operation is the name we have for it. So from 2010 to about 2015 or 16, we were running at about 2.25 Atlantis a year, right? As an average. Since since 2017, that has jumped until 2023, that has jumped to 5.8. So wow. we've doubled the amount of requests we receive every year as an average on domestic operations. So we're always ready. Every division has their troops that are on kind of standby to be able to answer the call. But yeah, there's been a definite increase into environmental crisis. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about uh, how other militaries, including our own, have been adding climate change as a factor into emergency response, whether on international operations or on domestic operations. And uh, we've definitely been tested by that recently. We have. We need to pay attention to it because we're always, as I said, eager to help. And this is why we're also joined, right? We joined for international operations, but also to help our fellow citizens. But this comes out of cost. So if we're doing domestic operations, if we're going and fight fires in British Columbia for the entire summer, well, it comes at a cost of what training am I not doing to prepare for an international operation? So it is something that we need to keep a close eye and have a good plan because we can predict it's going to increase, but we don't know at what level and when is it going to happen. Yeah, I know the chief of defense staff has brought up also that domestic operations is having increasingly significant impact on our, our ability to be prepared for things because troops that might be on standby to go on an international operation or support a UN or NATO mission or something like that might get pulled or people who are on leave, aka vacation, they're getting pulled back to go and fight forest fires or like you said, is like somebody in the middle of a training cycle get stop dropped and pulled off of that training cycle to go and fight forest fires. Yeah. So it's something that we we always have a force that's ready to react to those, but that doesn't mean they're just sitting there and waiting for an event to happen. They're going to continue on with their other training. But like you just mentioned, it might be something forest fire just just happens and then we have to stop whatever kind of training that we're doing at the time. And then we're going to just keep on with it. It does create some scheduling conflict whenever <laughs> yeah. we have that unit that's identified to eventually, maybe it could be even in a few months that's supposed to go overseas to do an operation. But that training needs to happen so that it can get there. So it is something we have to keep a close eye. Our demands for international operations will also continue to increase. So that will increase the demand as well. So we need to start looking very much in detail how we're going to tackle this for the next couple of years to make sure we have the troops available for the international operations, but we also have whatever we're going to need if a request for assistance comes around. How do you go about generating solutions to that kind of problem? I mean, that's a pretty complicated problem to overcome. It is. So right now we're looking at options so that we can propose it to the commander so he can make a decision. And when I'm talking about the commander, so the army will have a thing to say, but ultimately it will be going up to the CDS and to higher levels of approval. What are we looking at? So one of the great things that we do have is our reserve force. And especially for domestic operations, we often tap into that pool of personnel. I mentioned earlier that whenever an event happens for domestic operations, it's very 
local. It's very, you know, you're in your own turf, right? So it's going to happen if there's a forest fire in BC. Well, the folks from BC are going to be impacted by that. So by our nature, we want to help our fellow citizens. Uh, The reserve force that are there that are local most likely are going to be looking to support as well. But that comes at a cost as well, right? So now we're talking contracts for those reservists, which is great. But now we're talking money. So it's something I don't control. And I have to pitch it forward to say maybe that's a solution. Maybe we put extra long contracts. So maybe Mm -hmm. that's something we're going to look at. Maybe we're going to look at a national response force. And so I'm just going to have a unit that's going to be in Quebec, maybe. And then we're going to push it out to BC when that happens. So we're losing that touch with the community that we would be serving, but it's still our fellow Canadians. Uh, So those are some things or some options that we're toying with. Yeah. And for context, as it stands, the army has like these sections, right? You got the regular force, which is these larger, more centralized units that are, you know, full-time operations. You can throw them anywhere you need to. You have reserve force, which is generally part-time soldiers, usually smaller units that are located in a wider variety of communities. And then you even have the Canadian Rangers that are in more isolated communities and they have like specific local knowledge on their areas. How do those pieces all come together? Like, how do you engage them? Because the structure itself is, it's large. There's a lot of pieces to dig into those. How do you get all the parts moving? So that's a good question and a hard question to answer, actually, because whenever a request for assistance happens, because there's a crisis, because there's a situation that's percolating, you will see both the regular force that are on bases, those big bases that we have, they're starting to mobilize. And then you'll have the community, which has the reserve forces, more spread out in smaller numbers, little smaller units, but they're affected by what's going on right now. So they will be mobilizing as well. And then the Rangers, if we're talking about um, evacuation requests that we get, so we get those quite often, usually in the north. So this is where we tap into our Rangers to support in those requests for assistance. So they really all come together. Uh, It will come under one command, usually led by a land task force commander, and then we'll have different organizations that will play the part. So we'll have a company for a regular force, and then we'll have a company that's augmented by reserve force, and then they'll be on the task for two weeks, three weeks, depending how long the crisis lasts. You made a comment on requests for assistance and, you know, with a lot of people may not understand or realize, like, why is the army not just grabbing a pile of sandbags and going out and doing the thing? You want to explain a little bit how that works? Sure. So we have to understand as well that if we are doing this task, which is support to domestic operations, there's something we're not doing. Our main mandate is to make sure that we're operationally prepared to deploy anywhere around the world at the request of the government to provide support to another country or to an organization. When it comes to domestic operations, we have to understand that the provinces are actually responsible to tackle any situation that comes about. So whenever they're reaching a point where they cannot or no longer help or there's a danger to life or limb or important infrastructure and they're going to be overwhelmed by it, this is where they've exploited all the resources that they would have at the provincial level and then they return to the government and say, I need help. So normally we have liaisons officers as well in pretty much every province, so from the Canadian Armed Forces, that are there to also advise and say, you know what, this is happening. We can see that there's a major hurricane coming in the Atlantic, so we'll have some liaisons officer in Halifax and say, you know what, we could be able to support with that. So here's the effect that I can help you with. And this is where they would request 
a certain type of assistance and they have to request an effect, right? So I need help to support the firefighters to put out the fires, right? So we're not there to be firefighters. We're there to follow behind the firefighters and make sure we put out the hot spots and we make sure that the fire doesn't come back afterwards. So that's how the request comes. So it needs to be brought in from the province to the government of Canada and say, this is what I need help with. And then the government will look at it with the Army and say, hey, how can we help with that request? Do I just throw an airplane because I need to evacuate people? Do I throw personnel from the army because I need people to fill in sandbags and to help with the floods, for example? So this is how the request will come in. There will be normally a time associated with it. Hey, I need support for the next two weeks. Usually we see a two-week kind of time frame. And this can be shortened or this can get extended once again. But that will be a second request that will come in to say, hey, I need more time to be able to deal with that problem. Now, speaking of things that you can't do, like I remember uh, when I was deployed with the Olympics, so that was a pretty big domestic operation that was happening in B.C. As we were patrolling our area to make sure people weren't like trying to sneak into the Olympics or nothing bad was going to happen. We were connected with law enforcement and conservation officers, and we generally can't conduct any law enforcement stuff because that's not within the scope of what we do. And uh, I was wondering, what are some things that we don't do? So that would be the main one. So I'll give you a perfect example where I, I believe it was in the first request for RFA that we had received initially for this year. So we'll call it 2301. Uh, so <laughs> that enough. was the first set of forest fires that we had. And because they were displacing a lot of personnel and putting them into for lack of better terms, a, a kind of like a staging area. So the province was afraid of a little bit of civil unrest or a little bit of loitering or, you know, like some um, some quarrels in between the people that would be there. So one of the tasks in the RFA that we originally received was to help to maintain the peace there. And we said that we cannot do. We are not there to provide policing function on our own citizens. That's not what the uh, the CAF is there to do. Yeah, there's a good quote from a show that I've seen where it goes something along the lines of the military is there to fight the enemy of the state and the police are there to protect the people. And when the enemy becomes the people, that becomes a really complicated experience. And, you know, we don't really want to be put in that position unless it's like everything is just falling apart, really. Exactly. Same thing. Whenever we get a request for support or for assistance for the floods and we have to evacuate personnel, we still can't force residents to actually evacuate. We're there to support and to help them and bring them out of the, the area. But if they decide they want to stay, that's not for us to force them either. So these are the kinds of things that we would not be doing. So how is training for domestic operations different than international operations? Like, what do we do differently to prepare for that? So in terms of preparing for domestic operations, I would say other than for the firefighting task, which, once again, we are not the firefighters, but there's no training that's really associated with it, right? So we're often talking about floods, hurricanes, maybe even heavy snowfalls. Everybody shoveled their driver before, so we can support <laughs> into that. And then we would have for the floods, you know, it's mainly sandbags. It's patrolling also to make sure that, you know, we can give some directions as well to the province to say, hey, that bridge is about to be out. It was it out. We need support there. and You're going to need to repair that, right? So this is the function we would have. So in terms of training, not much. The main training is to make sure we remain ready. So that means into our physical aspect. 
So be in physical good shape as well as our medical is also good to go. So what you wouldn't want happening is a member on support of uh, floods and then uh, has to go in because all their medical is outdated and they're not doing well. Right. So you want to make sure you're on top physical shape for that. So that's really the main training. In terms of the firefighting, this is where we have a two day course that is designed to help us uh, be on the lookout, know exactly how to put out those hotspots and make sure also that we know how to conduct ourselves when we're following the line of firefighters that are battling the fire. Well, and that just highlights, you're talking about patrolling a little bit as an example, is it really highlights how we have uh, on the officer's side of the house a little bit more, you have the operational planning process. So that's just planning to do a thing. It doesn't really matter whether it's combat operations or whatever. And then patrolling, for example, is walking around the place, looking at things. You might be ready for a fight, but if there's no fight, you're still recording information. You're doing what's known as a patrol report. You're taking details on what's happening in that area. You're reporting it to hire. Those are all versatile tools that as part of our natural training, we do it, and then it can apply in a combat operations situation or in a domestic operations situation. It, it just works. Exactly. I think sometimes that we are highly trained for it, and it's something that would come naturally to anybody that says, hey, go into that village and make sure everybody's out. And then you would take back the information, push that to your chain of command and say, well, I saw a few people that are staying there. Maybe there's something deeper that we need to talk with the mayor or that we need to talk with the actual city so that we can tackle this situation because right now we can't do more. So that's the kind of training that we would bring to the table. It wouldn't be a specific training for the domestic operation, but because of our training for international operation, we can just apply it to it. Well, and also CIMIC or civil military cooperation is a specialization training that exists that people can take that's, again, used on international operations to connect with local partners, whether it be non-governmental organizations or local leaders or industry in that area to help get things done. And there's probably some pretty good translation to how that applies, again, in a domestic context. I've never done the CIMIC courses, but it would absolutely be transferable and usually in your organization, you'll have a few folks that would have had that training as well. Now, it is not mandatory for our domestic operation execution. But yeah, that would be a great tool to have in your toolbox. So can you tell us maybe the story of a recent domestic operation that we've stood up and kind of how all the pieces came together? Like, how did we engage with the people? How did we select what was going to happen? Can you take us through a little bit something that might have happened recently? Uh, So I can run over a few. I don't think I can go that much into the details because in my role, what I'm doing basically is telling which unit, all right, you're going to go and you're going to deploy for this domestic operation because we've received the request. Once I do deploy the division and the unit, then they belong to CJOC, so the Canadian Joint Operations Command. So they're the ones that are responsible to control what's going to happen on the ground. But in terms of how did it happen for the summer, because it was quite busy. We went up to eight requests of our phase that were accepted by the government. And we were involved, the Canadian Army, in all eight of them. Uh, So mainly forest fires (laughs) that has happened all across the country. So I think one of the ones that is a bit more out of the box that we were not used to doing, which would be the most interesting, is 2307, which was the Northwest Territories. Uh, So normally we have each division has their own troops that are on standby. So IRU's immediate response units that are ready to respond to any kind of domestic operations that would happen. So every division has their own troops that are put on that standby 24 hours notice to move. They're always ready to go. 
So it's been very busy for three divs. So everything out west, so BC, Alberta, it was quite busy this summer. So they were really, really requested. When 2307, so the Northwest Territories happened, so we had folks that was already from three div already deployed and busy with current forest fires in Alberta and in BC. So we had to make a decision as Canadian Army. Are we going to ask three division once again to have other troops? Now we're taking other troops and now it has a big trickle down effect to the international operations. Or am I looking what's going on as well in, in the rest of the country and maybe I can deploy somebody from a different area? And that's what we ended up doing. So what we decided to do was we were looking at the prediction that we could see as well in the forecast. And uh, we identified two division in Quebec to be a good unit to deploy to the Northwest Territory. Now, that came with a great challenges because we have to understand we, as the Canadian Army, do not control our strategic left. So it was a combined effort with the Canadian Joint Operations Command. So CJOC, who's in control of it, to say, okay, how are we going to get those troops over there now? Because we got to fly them over. And the logistics that goes behind it. So normally, when you have an organization that works into their area, then their logistic uh, trail will follow. So their food their water, their trucks will all follow. Now we had to push everything from elsewhere. 3Dev was still very, very much involved into supporting with the logistics aspect of it. But it's still about a 20-hour drive from Edmonton all the way to uh, Yellowknife where the fires were happening. So that was quite a bit of a challenge for this year. They arrived there and then Yellowknife had to evacuate. So at the same time where you have the head of the operation, which was in Yellowknife, because that was Joint Task Force North that was responsible to control all the elements, well, they had to evacuate at the same time. So that was quite a challenge for them. <laughs> yeah, that- so a lot of back and forth, a lot of communication in between uh, all the elements to make sure that the troops were there to help, but we got them out safely as well, staged them somewhere, and then returned them to where they had to be. And one thing we haven't had a chance to talk about a lot on the podcast is logistics, but you just highlighted some of those challenges is the Air Force controls the airplane, the Army controls the people, somebody in the middle needs to kind of coordinate all of that stuff, and then you got to get the stuff there and you got your food, your water and all of this. And because where you're going, you maybe don't have access to that. All the vehicles, sometimes there isn't roads to get there. Like you literally can't drive there. Maybe the Navy is shipping stuff for you. You don't know. And then on top of that, when you hit the ground, if you're evacuating from like what I would call like a hard headquarters that's in a building or something like that, you got to set up in the field. Somebody has to sell up all your telecommunications. You don't just like roll onto the scene. And if you've got computer networks and satellite connections and all that stuff, there's a bunch of people need to get out there. They need to set it all up. They need to connect to all these things, make it all happen so that these soldiers from all these different places show up there and are ready to go to do the thing. Yeah, there's a lot of coordination that happens before and during because usually we don't have much time. If it's a request for assistance, it's because things are not going well. So you need to act quickly and you need to react quickly as well. So as you're sending your first initial troops, they're starting to set us up. Then the rest of the big group arrives and then they're they want to start working. Have we made all the liaison as well with the province? Yes, we're ready to go. Well, where's the trail going to follow? So if I go back to that Northwest Territory event, so in Yellowknife, it took about three days for the logistics to actually 
quickly catch up. So we had folks there with just basically their rocks on their backs and whatever they had in there to be able to to survive for the next three days. Yeah, now we're hours self-sufficient. Well, exactly. So we're, we're all military. We're all trained to do this kind of stuff. But at the same time, you're fighting in conditions as well that are not, yeah, there might not be an enemy in the sense of the term that we usually use it. But it's not an easy situation. Air quality is so, so poor. You're doing it in conditions that are not ideal either. So our soldiers are, are really good to be able to pull it through. So with all this being said, does it work? Are we doing it? Is it helping? So it is. I mean, there's always some lull in the battle, right? So that's what I call it. So there's always sometimes, well, we got to get there really, really quickly. And then we get there and we actually get there before the province is ready to receive us. So sometimes a little bit of a lag time. Are we employed for the entire two weeks, every day, every minute, every hour? Of course not. So there will be some little lag time. Uh, are we helping? Absolutely. If we weren't doing it, would the province be able to find a solution? Perhaps, but that means with more planning, with more time, with more money, with more everything. It's the same thing for everyone. So if we're there, we can be able to help. It's always a great thing to be able to help your community. I mean, there's some troops that came back from, uh, I believe it was from BC, and they got stopped into a rest stop, and people came up to them and and were saying, thank you so much for helping us. Thank you for doing that. Uh, so there's some great work that's being done. And when it's to help your community, it's very rewarding that way. Well, that's great. I think uh, I think we're doing it. That's what we're here for, I guess, is to help our people, our team. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, ma'am. Well, thanks for having me. That was Lieutenant Colonel Geneviève Bertrand from the Canadian Army Headquarters here in Ottawa. I'm Captain Adam Morton for the Canadian Army Podcast. Morton out. Morton out.